Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today for our New York Workers' Compensation webinar. I wanted to start today's webinar by showing something off that I think is kind of cool. Uh, we just opened up last month uh, what we're calling Lois Lab, which is our new training center here at Lois Law Firm. This is not a stock background. Uh, this is the kitchen and lounge area behind me at Lois Lab. And I'm going to swing the camera over this way and you'll be able to see our new training center where we can hold trainings for up to 100 people. And for today, I thought this would be just a fun backdrop uh, to sort of talk about and show off. We're really excited about Lois Lab and what it means, which is we have been accredited by the state of New York as a continuing legal education provider. So going forward into the future, we're expecting to use this space to continue to train our own attorneys. There are 51 attorneys that work at Lois Law Firm and 49 paralegals that serve them. And this is going to be the area that we're going to be training them in. But also with our CLE accreditation in the future and going forward, you'll be getting invited to a CLE or continuing legal education requirement events that we're going to be holding here. And we're, our plan is to open it up to the general uh, legal public, meaning lawyers and judges who don't work at Lois Law Firm, are going to be given an opportunity to come in and sort of learn workers' compensation and associated topics uh, here uh, in our new facility. So I'm hoping sometime soon you'll be getting an invite to uh, come learn with us, commune, and get excited about workers' compensation topics. Today, if you're here today, we're going to talk about uh, releases, resignations, uh, and how we separate ourselves uh, from employees. And, you know, these necessary endings happen. And I get a lot of questions about um, what are the rules, Greg? What are the pitfalls? What are the barriers? And what are the technical legal hurdles that we have to overcome when we're separating a claimant in a workers' compensation case, either during the pendency of their workers' compensation proceeding or afterwards. So that's our topic for today. Thanks for joining me. I'm very excited to talk about this topic because it's one I get a lot of questions on day-to-day uh, -day from clients. This is completely and totally live, um, so please type your questions into me. I can see the questions pop up on my um, <clears throat> question box, and I try to answer as many of it as I can live. So just in broad terms, what are, what are we talking about when we're talking about releases and resignations? A resignation is a legal document where one party agrees to resign their employment. And a release is a different type of document. It's where they're waiving maybe other claims against us, uh, present or future claims against the same employer. Totally legal, questionable about the enforceability of certain types of releases, but I'm going to talk about all of that today. And I'm actually going to start with the practical application of this. Um, you know, sometimes we don't need a resignation from the employee. Sometimes we don't need a release. Maybe uh, there are opportunities to terminate where we don't have to seek their permission or buy-in or participation, right? So I want to talk about that, and I want to make this as practical and useful as possible while staying within the boundaries of what the law uh, allows us to do. So let's start with terminations, separations, and layoffs. And we're going to make the presumption that the person who is the subject of this termination, separation, or layoff has brought a workers' compensation claim against the employer uh, or is in the process of 
uh, going through the workers' compensation system, meaning they were injured at work, they have a workers' compensation claim, and they're pursuing it. So the first boundary I want to talk about is Section 120 of the workers' compensation law. Section 120 of the New York workers' compensation law actually forbids us from discriminating in employment decisions regarding our employees who are either seeking workers' compensation benefits, receiving workers' compensation benefits, or uh, a testificant, meaning a party to a workers' compensation case from a testamentary uh, uh, position. Now, the law says, quote, it shall be unlawful for any employer to discharge or fail to reinstate or in any other manner discriminate against an employee because such employee has claimed or attempted to claim compensation from the employer or because he or she has testified or is about to testify in a proceeding under the workers' compensation. So Section 120 says, hey, we cannot make adverse employment decisions about someone who's brought a workers' compensation claim against us who is about to, meaning we know they're going to bring a workers' compensation claim, or is testifying or a party in a workers' compensation case. So think about your employee who hasn't brought a workers' compensation claim against you, but is testifying maybe in favor of another employee who has brought such a claim. So the law forbids us from discriminating against them, and the main discrimination that the law addresses is when we terminate, separate uh, them from the employment. Now, you are allowed to terminate someone who has brought a workers' compensation claim against you, but you need to do it in a neutral way. And so there are there is case law out there that says as long as you have a legitimate business concern, in the case of Duncan versus New York, which is a 1984 case, says an employment practice applied even-handedly to all employees represents a neutral policy. It doesn't constitute discrimination under the New, under the New York workers' compensation law. And especially if it's based on a legitimate business concern. So, again, you can always fire an employee if you have a legitimate business reason to do so, even though they're receiving workers' compensation benefits. And this is important to know because it doesn't mean that just because someone brings or maybe is going to bring a comp claim against you, it doesn't mean they're untouchable. It doesn't mean that you you put them on hold and everything that goes on with them is on hold. It just means you have to be thoughtful about the way you do it. What does legitimate business concern mean? Well, it's a legitimate business concern if you're going to lay that person off anyway, maybe for lack of work, right, or general economic conditions. Hey, there's been a slowdown. We don't need a third shift in the plant. I'm letting people go because I don't need a third shift in the plant, and I'm this person worked on the third shift. I don't need them anymore, and so I'm allowed to let them go. And it doesn't – you don't have to worry about uh, their – or, or, or introduce speculation about, well, is this because of a workers' compensation situation? No, you're allowed to do this. And again, the case law that says you can do that is Brewster versus Leave-Through. You can, it's also a legitimate business concern to let someone go if they cannot perform the essential functions of their actual job. So in one case, Monroe versus Cortland County, which is a 2000 case, the court said the discharge was due to a valid business reason. The employee was discharged because he couldn't work as a recycling supervisor. He was offered reassignment, but even in the reassignment, he couldn't do the duties of that job because he couldn't operate, in this instance, a skid steer, a skid steer, sorry, for more than 40 minutes a day. And so because he couldn't do an essential function of the job, his termination was found to be non-discriminatory. So in other words, if you 
have a legitimate business need to have someone do that job, you don't have to hold that job open or create a fake job to keep that person attached to your workplace. It's okay to let them go. That's a legitimate business reason. And there's case law from 1983 that says just because uh, you're letting them go uh, and they've brought a workers' compensation case, even though technically that would violate the words of Section 120, the courts realize that's unfair and illogical. And in fact, they said to subject an employer to a monetary penalty uh, where they have a legitimate business reason to let someone go would be illogical and unfair to the employer. So there is good case law and strong case law. It's been on the books for a long time that says if they can't perform the essential functions of their work, that means you've got a legitimate business reason, a valid business reason to let them go. Now, just because the employee brings a claim and you dispute it and then subsequently terminate them, you have not discriminated against them, right? You always have the opportunity as the employer to challenge claims. And the mere challenge of a claim, of a workers' compensation claim, that's not employment discrimination, okay? You have the right, and the case of Axel versus Duffy Mott says, you have the right to present your position to the board, and you should not be penalized uh, when you're making a decision saying this person's not entitled to workers' compensation. I am allowed to challenge that. It doesn't provide blanket protection for an employee. You can also always terminate an employee due to their own misconduct. The case of Vanelli versus New Venture Process says that even though the retaliation provision of the workers' compensation law, Section 120 I just talked about, it's supposed to protect employees, it's not intended to shield them from discharge due to their own misconduct. You can always file an employee for misconduct while they're receiving workers' compensation benefits. So if you're terminating them for misconduct, what kind of behavior would be justified in that termination? Well, in a recent case, uh, decided in 2016, Hajj, probably ruining that name, versus Starbucks, the court says this. The determination that the claimant was terminated for providing false information to the employer in an incident report and not in retaliation for filing a claim for workers' compensation benefits was supported by the evidence. The employee handbook provided to the claimant included a warning that, quote, falsification or misrepresentation of any company document, close quote, might warrant immediate termination. The claimant's own coworker admitted that he was asked by the claimant to write false reports so that he could claim workers' compensation benefits. And for that reason, he was terminated. So that his own misconduct was the basis for the termination. That's always going to be acceptable as a valid business reason to terminate someone. Okay, how much evidence do I need, Greg? What is going to be considered sufficient evidence? And what is the claimant going to present as sufficient evidence showing that I wrongfully terminated them in a discriminatory fashion? Well, the answer is pretty much anything the claimant alleges is going to be considered sufficient by the Workers' Compensation Board to at least establish their claim of discrimination. In the case versus of Markey versus Autosaver, it's a 2020 case, it's really going to be the conversation that this employee had with their own employer. In that case, the claimant told his supervisor, hey, I'm going to be filing a workers' compensation claim, and I'm going to need time to recover from my injuries. The supervisor got real angry and told them, hey, the owner's going to fire you. You're, they're not going to be happy with that. And then immediately, the employee was fired. In that case, the board said, hey, look, there's enough evidence here for us to consider whether or not the employer did a discriminatory act. 
And the evidence is, again, just the hearsay testimony of the claimant saying, I went to tell them I had a worker's comp injury. I was told this, that they were going to be un very, not very happy with that. And then I was immediately terminated. That's going to be enough information. Other cases address how much evidence is necessary for the employee to be uh, to prevail. In the case of Gazowski versus Pecos Construction, which was decided in 1990, the claimant actually went out on workers' compensation, received valid care, was discharged for returning to work uh, from care, came back to work, and the first day he came back to the to work, the employer immediately fired them for no other valid reason. It was just that. You've been out on comp, you came back today, you're terminated, get off our property. The board says, okay, it's pretty clear. We're looking at the timeline there. There's no other valid business reason given. And so for that reason, we're going to grant that as a sufficient reason. And if you read the case of Hawes versus Dime Savings Bank, the claimant was told that if he filed a workers' comp claim, it could cost him his job. And as soon as he uh, uh, filed the claim, he was fired uh, without a determining if he was injured, was able to return to work or anything. So that was another pretty clear example. And again, you don't have anything in writing from the employer that says, I'm terminating you today because you filed workers' compensation. The court's going to look at that timeline. If you're going to separate while someone's on workers' compensation, just know you're allowed to do it. But you can't do it in a discriminatory fashion. You can't fire them just because they filed the workers' comp claim, just because they're about to file a workers' comp claim, or they're going to testify in a workers' compensation proceeding in a way that's probably going to be unfavorable to you. You can separate them, though, if you have any legitimate business reason, any valid business reasons. And those valid business reasons, again, general economic conditions, general slowdown, uh, a need to fill a job, you know, some small shops, small employers. If we need somebody to operate the forklift, I've got to get someone in to do that job. I, if I don't get that forklift moving, that warehouse doesn't get, uh, stocks, you know, all those reasons are valid business reasons. You can also separate them for employee, uh, employee misconduct. Uh, they did something affirmatively wrong that violated your policies or procedures or handbook. But the thing the board's going to look at when they're determining whether you, the employer, act in a discriminatory fashion is really going to look at the timing and they're going to look at the statements that were made to the claimant and take a look at those. You know, you don't want the timing to be reported a claim, you're immediately fired. Uh, there has to be some other valid reason. Resignations. Now, sometimes our employee, our clients will say, okay, as a con we want to get this person to resign. Uh, we want their employment with us to come to an end. Uh, and sometimes those necessary endings have to happen. Law forbids demanding a resignation as a condition of a settlement. If you tell the employee, unless you resign, I will not do a settlement with you, that's going to be problematic. You can still get a resignation separately. You just can't make it contingent, expressly contingent, on the workers' comp and settlement, settlement that you're offering. So if you offer someone $100,000, you say, you're going you're gonna to give you this wonderful settlement of $100,000, but you have to resign as soon as that settlement clears. That's not going to pass muster. But you could do them separately. You can offer them a workers' compensation settlement of $100,000, and in a separate agreement, say, hey, as we want you to resign, and I'll talk in a second about the mechanics of that resignation. Please also know that we do have to disclose any of those secondary or side agreements, whether they're dealing with resignation or release or any other aspect of the employment, if they're happening at the same time of the settlement. 
you never have to disclose the terms of the resignation to the Workers' Compensation Board because, of course, the Workers' Compensation Board lacks jurisdiction over any resignation agreement. I'll also tell you that generally requiring the claimant to state that they will not seek rehire or reapply for the same position will not be accepted by the board. Now, you could do that in your resignation, but you cannot put that in any Section 32 settlement documents. In general, the board will not approve any Section 32. That's a lump sum dismissal. Here's your money. Goodbye. Your journey with us has come to an end settlement where the claimant is required to not reapply for the same job. So just be careful about the way that's worded and where that's placed. Now, a resignation may or may not also be accompanied by a severance or a monetary incentive called consideration. I see resignations conducted for absolutely no money at all, for a nominal sum, or sometimes for multiples of months or weeks of pay. People say, well, how come people will resign their position for no money at all, or for a nominal sum, let's say $100. And the answer is, they had no intention of going back to that employment anyway, right? They they worked there, they had an injury, they've now settled that in workers' comp court. They really have no intention of going back to the employer, and so they're generally pretty okay with signing the resignation. In fact, in general, resignations and uh, releases, we do them in due course here, and it's really not uh, out of the ordinary to do them in this jurisdiction. Another word about resignations. They cannot be sought by or paid for by an insurance carrier. This exceeds your workers' compensation insurance policy. There is no workers' compensation insurance policy that says something like, you, my insurance carrier, has the right to fire my employees or seek their termination or resignation, right? That's just something that exceeds the contract, and so that wouldn't be covered. However, where we see employers asking for reservation, resignations, excuse me, or want to have them as part of their overall um, conclusion or closure of a workers' compensation case is in the self-insured uh, context or the high deductible context where the employer really has a sophisticated understanding of their own risk, understand what they want to do with their employees, and generally speaking, will seek those. All right, next topic is releases. Can you get a release to a company or close a workers' compensation case? Well, the board has been very specific, and they've said that at a provision in a Section 32, that's a settlement agreement, lump sum dismissal, that says the claimant's waiving rights or claims outside of the workers' compensation context, it's not invalid on its face, right? But in general, we're doing these things off to the side. The time it will be valid, of course, is where you're closing cases in a global settlement. Maybe the claimant has a workers' compensation claim against the employer, as well as other associated claims. It's rare, but it happens. In that instance, all of those cases can be closed by way of a Section 32. Most employers that we're working with, particularly the self-insured employers, have a specific release template that they want to use uh, to address potential future claims. Uh, we're fine with that, and we generally tailor our practice to what the employer is looking for. These general releases will often contain releases of unrelated potential future claims, usually employment practices-related claims like wage and hour claims, like law against discrimination claims, civil rights claims, discrimination claims, age claims, etc. Okay. Um, now, some of those provisions, by the way, may be rendered null by law. In other words, uh, you know, the, the law against discrimination says that you can't prospectively waive your claims in that in context. That's okay. Um, 
just understand that some claims cannot be waived prospectively. But the specific releases, you know, a general release of future claims, I think the real value of it is psychological. You know, people are not logical. People are psychological. And you have this employee that's been on this employment journey with you, interrupted perhaps by a workers' compensation situation. And now that workers' compensation claim is coming to an end, usually with a Section 32 lump sum payment. That employment journey has come to an end, and it's time for a necessary parting. The release might not be enforceable. But I think it serves a psychological purpose for the claimant. They understand, okay, this season of my life is over. I am now moving on. This is done. This is behind me. And it enables them to sort of move forward in a fresh fashion. So it's fine. Um, how much should people pay for a release? There's no rules about this. The release may have a specific monetary incentive or payment or consideration offered. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. And again, I see releases that are offered for no money or for some small amount, $100, $500, $1,000. then I see releases, uh, general releases that are offered as multiple of weeks pay. So, uh, you're going to accept this, um, this release or sorry, this resignation. You're going to give me a release as well that, you know, protects me and I'm going to pay you four weeks of salary. And that's the end of the story, right? And that amount of consideration might help bolster the validity of that alleged contract that you're getting into. Again, releases should not be sought by or paid for by an insurance carrier. This again exceeds your insurance contract because remember that workers' compensation insurance policy only covers workers' compensation injuries or injuries deemed compensable under the workers' compensation law and should not exceed that. The carrier should not be expending its own time, blood, and treasure uh, to secure protections for the employer against potential future claims that have not yet arisen. Um, in general, releases are sought by and paid for, meaning whatever consideration is going to change hands by the direct employer. I'm also going to address uh, the hold harmless agreement, which is kind of a close relative of a release. What's a hold harmless? Uh, it's getting the claimant to sign something that says, hey, if some aspect of this workers' compensation proceeding or litigation or settlement um, should cause a future problem, you, the claimant, will indemnify or hold me harmless from any future harms, right? How does that come into play? Example, the claimant must indemnify and hold the insurer harmless for any payment made by Medicare uh, for the treatment of the claimant's work-related injuries prior to the execution of the Section 32 waiver agreement. In other words, I'm doing a lump sum dismissal with the claimant, and I'm asking them to hold me harmless, the employer harmless, uh, for any Medicare conditional payments which weren't yet satisfied. The board will never approve that. They will never approve any kind of hold harmless agreement where there's going to be risk shifting between the parties back to the claim. So that will never fly. Another one that I've seen, and, and we've tried it, I mean, we've put this into documents and the board has refused to do it, quote, claimant will indemnify and hold harmless the insurer in the event that the insurer incurs liability as a result of the claimant's failure to safeguard the fund of a self-administered Medicare set-aside account established pursuant to the agreement. So in other words, you've got a Section 32 lump sum dismissal, there had to be a set-aside to take care of Medicare's prospective future responsibility for medical care. We've paid the claimant both the Section 32 settlement and we've given them the Medicare set-aside, so another bucket of money for them to pay for for future medical, and they abuse that. 
that second bucket, that set aside. They embezzle from it, essentially. You know, they take the money out of their set aside and they go down to Atlantic City for the weekend and they play roulette and lose it all. Well, that money was really meant to be put aside to uh, pay for future medical and they, they don't, they didn't use it correctly. They used it for some other purpose. And then in the future, when they present their Medicare card, Medicare is going to come to us and look for a double penalty under 33 USC 1395Y, which is the secondary payer statute. And, you know, we've wanted to try to indemnify ourselves and say, look, we did the right things. And so to sidestep having to go prove to the Center for Medicare Services that we did the right thing would say, okay, claim it, you have to indemnify us. You, you have to step into the shoes and you could be liable for that double penalty. The board, the Workers' Compensation Board in New York has consistently said any sort of risk shifting or hold harmless agreements will not be acceptable and they are not going to approve those or allow those. So uh, you can't do those as part of a Section 32. So that's an overview of your choices, right? Your choices for the employees, can, can I terminate them without worrying about resignations, releases, hold harmless? Yes, you can, right? As long as there is a legitimate business reason to do so. Uh, if you still want to, if, if you want to terminate them later on, you want to do a resignation or a release, uh, or you want to do a hold harmless, what are the best practices, Greg? How do I go about and do that? Well, take a look at section 32 itself. This is the enabling statute that allows us to do lump sum dismissals. It's only been on the books for about 30 years. 1996 is when this was added to the statute. And it says that a full and final dismissal has to address three things. How much compensation that we're going to pay them, right? What's the lump sum of money? What's going to happen with medical benefits? And how much are we going to pay their attorney? Those are the three things we have to address. A Section 32 agreement can never waive prospective future workers' compensation claims. Can't do that. But look at what's not referenced, right? What's not in the statute. And you won't find it anywhere in the statute of regular or the regulations. The ideas of seeking that side agreement for a resignation, a release, a hold harmless, or anything else that you want to do. The settlement agreements on the Section 32, once they become binding on the on the parties, they have to be submitted to the Workers' Compensation Court. And I'm sorry, in order for them to be binding, have to be submitted to the Workers' Compensation Court and approved by a Workers' Compensation Law Judge. Now, if we do have a separate side agreement with the claimant, either for a resignation or a release, we have to reveal that in our Section 32 settlement documents. Now, it's very simple. In our office, we just add a couple sentences that say, by the way, this Section 32 resolves the, the compensation, the medical, and the attorney's fees components of the workers' compensation case. But, but for other claims or situations, we have some separate agreements going with this claim. That's all we have to do. Um, now, the board will disapprove of Section 32 if you don't put that information in there. Now, let's talk about some of the times that this can, can become a problem. If the employer requires the claimant to execute an agreement, waiving in any and all claims it might have against the employer in any jurisdiction, that condition and the terms of the waiver must be included in Section 32. But where you have a situation where the claimant is being, we're putting something into the Section 32 agreement, like in order for this Section 32 to be valid, it's contingent on, and here's the bold lettering here, claimant will resign from the employer, and if he does not resign, the self-insured will withdraw from the agreement before it becomes final. That's unlikely to pass muster in the workers' compensation board. Uh, they're likely to disapprove that potential settlement. If it is a condition, we've got to put it in the documents, but again, they're unlikely to approve it. 
So how do we get around that or how do we address this? Well, the way we address it is every single Section 32 settlement has to be accompanied by a Section 32 self-insured employer's affirmation. And it's on a form because, of course, the Workers' Compensation Board loves forms. This form is a C-32AF. The Section C-32AF form contains an affirmation, who, again, is going to be signed by your attorney, that says that the document that we submitted to the Workers' Compensation Board contains all the agreements in the settlement. And if there are separate agreements, we have to specifically state, yes, there are separate agreements. In other words, we just have to put everybody on notice, including the board, that there are separate agreements. Generally speaking, uh, just because we complete that form and just because we're doing a separate resignation or release, it does not require submitting the separate agreement to the board. Again, they have no power to review them, approve them, disapprove them. That's something that we did between us and the employee. But the board does have to be put on notice that we're doing it. Okay. Uh, again, interestingly, in your Section 32 settlement, you can settle other associated claims, but only those claims that are directly related to the workers' compensation accident, and they can be closed in a uh, uh, global settlement. So let's turn over to questions and concerns. Uh, I'm hoping there's some good questions today because this is a topic that I constantly get questions about from my own clients, uh, particularly around resignations and releases. I know in many jurisdictions you can't do them, uh, but most, of the, uh, but in New York they are absolutely allowed. All right. So I got one here from Suzanne. Suzanne asked the question, Greg, do you see that if you let an employee go while they are in workers' compensation, the claim will drag on? And how do you fight that? Okay, so I think the question here is really, We've separated them. They can't come back to the employment. What impact does that have on the defense of the workers' compensation claim? Now, in general, one of the big defenses that are going to be taken away from you is your defense of offering them a light-duty position, right? That's always my position, that we want to bring people back to the employment as quickly as we possibly can. But for some circumstances, you don't want to do that. Other circumstances, you just simply cannot. So, unfortunately, that that is one uh, avenue, again, that we want to bring people back to the employment, you know, for psychosocial reasons, it's really a positive thing to do. But if you've already terminated them, either, you know, during the pendency of their workers' compensation case or towards the end of it where you're getting ready to settle the case, that's really problematic, right? Because you can't ask them to come back, which oftentimes can be the leverage towards settling a case. So you've got to be strategic about this. It absolutely should not be, um, you know, something that you just do and without really thinking about what are the long-term impacts of our case. So I think the, the question is sometimes it could have the impact of, A, well, it's reducing your leverage because you can't ask them to come back to the employment to do light-duty work. Uh, but most of the time, at the time a resignation is obtained, it's when we're ready to settle the case anyway. And so for that reason, I don't see it as generally dragging on the case. What I think employers are doing when they're seeking a resignation at the time of closing a case is they're trying to protect themselves or insulate themselves from going down this road again with the same person, right? The employment has come to the necessary end. It's time to resolve things. It's time to put the, the, the settlement on the record. And the employer is really trying to think to themselves, how do I not get back in the same situation with the same person again? And so that's why those um, resignations are sought. And that's why we obtain them. All right. I see some other comments in here. It looks like, 
at the very beginning, um, just some notes saying, okay, can see you breaking up. Okay, good. Um, don't see any other questions. It is 3.30. We do have a lot of attendees though. So, um, if you're typing in a question, I'll check, I'll check the box one more time. Well, it looks good. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining this month. I hope this was a good topic and a useful topic for you. I'll, I'll see you next month and I hope you have a happy Halloween. Bye everybody.